<laughs> All right, gang, welcome to the True Wild Radio Show, your favorite show that you've got on the radio right now. I want the I want the fan one that goes, <sighs> like it sounds like I a know, large like, stadium. Hey, it's time for the Yay! True Wild Radio Show. It's the best day ever. <laughs> Although, I want to know what's going on in your personal life, because we've talked about sharks three times today. Um, you have managed to bring up sharks. You guys started that. <laughs> Three times today, David. But I will tell you that my children right now are obsessed with the Baby Shark song. Oh. Mostly because the three-year-old like acts it out, and then, so it's really <laughs> funny and cute. Yeah. So they keep playing it on Alexa devices. Yeah. To like just, laugh at her, and she yeah. laughs too because she thinks everybody loves her, and it's yes. great. And then when it's time to run away, she does laps in the house. <laughs> so uh, there you go. If you haven't heard the song, it's on YouTube. If you uh, haven't heard the song, don't <laughs> listen because it will get stuck in your brain yeah, for months really on end. Yeah, it's really tough to get it out of your head. Uh, but then it became a, a source of much mockery for me because we were referencing some of the some movies and. How stupid they We talked are. about Sharknado. We talked Sharknado, about the Meg. The, the I don't know. We kept just like, talking just, about sharks. <laughs> some of these movies, there's so much suspension of disbelief that it becomes uh, a challenge even for me. And I am really good at just checking out. And I'm like not a movie critic, right? I, it, I drive people nuts that they really want to unpack a movie and try to explain the intent of the director and all the artsy stuff involved. Meanwhile, I'm just like, that's ah, fun. They blew stuff up. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I I've actually gotten to the point lately where if it's not really entertaining, I will start to nod off. And I never thought I would be that person because oh. I love movies. But like, whole, it has to really hold my attention span. Yeah. No, I, I am, just can't. I'm, I'm so simple. I've watched some really terrible, probably not even beef, movies they're like c and d movies and i can extract entertainment value out of it just for the sheer nonsense of it uh the league of extraordinary gentlemen really a genuinely terrible movie but i remember watching it yeah and And he's awesome and the poor guy uh because you watch that movie and i remember it was like me and a buddy in the theater with one other person and it was like watching mystery science theater 3000 we just sat there and mocked it the whole time (laughs) So that movie was awesome to me because we had such a great time making fun of it out oh. loud in a theater. And I'm pretty sure the other person was giggling with us because they never said a word. They're just it's, kind of snickered every now and when we make a comment like, yeah, yeah that totally made sense. You know, I, yeah, I've seen it a couple of times. So I know I know what you're talking about. It's but. just a it's just a B minus at best. <laughs> uh, it's really more like a D plus. It, it, it's not it's well below average, but it doesn't have sharks. David. There's no sharks to, that <laughs> it I has recall. Ahab though, but not sharks. <laughs> well, it, no, it's uh, was yeah it? Ahab. No, that you're thinking Nautilus. of. No, that was. Is that the captain's name of the yeah, Nautilus? Yeah, Captain Ahab and the Nautilus. I thought that was from um, Moby Dick. It is. Well, no, because Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea was the Nautilus. I thought that was. They combined everything. It's a it's a spoof on no, all sorts it, of crap. It, Come it on. I'm pretty sure that. <laughs> all right. So how does this apply to true wealth or financial? It stuff? It doesn't. <laughs> Glad we had this talk. <laughs> it has. So we can now begin <laughs> the actual content <laughs> portion of the radio show. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, so welcome everybody to the True Well Show. If you've been tuning into the podcast, we have wasted a certain portion of your life. We're and sorry. Now we're going to make it better because the topic of the day is what is the topic of the day, David? Efficiency. See, I like efficiency, so I'm okay. excited to hear your take on this. So we're going to cover a number of concepts about efficiency and the investment world. Now, it's not what you think. 
Okay, the low-hanging fruit, the easy thing would be to just say something like, oh, you're just going to say hire somebody, right? Because you don't change your own oil. It's like yeah, a sales no. pitch. No, no, actually, uh, that is a component of efficiency. And that's when we're going to, we'll talk about how you handle personal efficiency, right? So we're going to cover a lot of ground today. But you said financial efficiency. Financial efficiency. I want to talk about asset class efficiency today too. Ooh. Okay. This is that sounded like a really big, like it wasn't a big word, but like a really big term asset class. So this is a, a genuine financial lesson today. Nice. Like the kind of thing where you tune in and if you stick with me today, I believe that you will walk away more knowledgeable than you started this program with some ideas that you can execute in real life to help improve your investment outcomes. Great. Let's get down to that. Yeah. So we're going to talk about it, but it all starts with this backdrop of efficiency. Okay. Okay. So what do we, first of all, efficiency has Broadly speaking, what do we mean? When it comes to efficiency? Yeah. When I think of efficiency, I think of like either the quickest or best, most uh, efficient, the the best way to do something with the least bumps or the least amount of hurdles or like sometimes it's the quickest, Mm -hmm. right? The quickest way to do something, being organized. Um, That's great. You know what? I have a Webster's Dictionary Act. Uh, yeah, so achieving maximum productivity with minimum wasted effort there or expense. There you go. Was that what Webster said? So that's what Google says. Ah. Which probably comes from somewhere like Webster, you know. Uh, but e- that's being efficient, and efficiency is the act of being efficient. Right. right. So we want to talk about achieving maximum productivity with minimum wasted effort or expense. Google has a better definition. Webster (coughs) says the ratio of the useful energy delivered by a dynamic system to the energy supplied to it. Google's better. Google wins. Well, that's a very scientific explanation. That's uh, efficiency is a measurement when you're looking at, uh, yeah, a, a a system. So like an engine, right? How efficient is the internal combustion engine? You put fuel in it, it burns. It it grinds. Yeah. So what's out. the rate that it burns right. and how? Uh, yeah. In fact, this is my number one total side note. This is my number one question for somebody that brings me the concept of, oh look, it's free energy, it's perpetual, and I always go, is the system a hundred percent efficient? Right. Yeah, because it would have to be, be if it's free energy. Yeah, which it cannot be because you have things like friction and drag and gravity. So all of those are parasitic to 100% efficiency. So can you make it in the vacuum of space with materials that have zero resistance? Uh, Then maybe you could get, but- But then what do you have to do to create that vacuum? Well, you know, I'm not suggesting that there's no input energy. That's that's a different concept altogether. But what I'm suggesting is that there's no such thing as 100% efficiency as we right. know it in a in a system. Well, this one also says effective operation as measured by a comparison of production with cost. So as an energy time and money. So right. So, so how productive are you? How much does it cost yeah. you? So this is where we're going to start meeting real life. Okay. And in the investment landscape, if we talk about efficiency. Let's say that uh, you have the ability to invest in two different identical investments. Okay. Okay. So we're going to say you could go to, how about, I'm going to pick on names, even though I don't know the actual ratios here. You could go to Vanguard or you could go to Charles Schwab and you could buy the S&P 500 index fund from them. Okay. Okay. So you're buying the same product from two different people. 
Potentially. You know, in theory, these are identical because the S&P 500 is the 500's largest the cap-weighted the stocks the, from the U.S. Right. So it's a formula. You can take the formula and reproduce it. You know, hey, I've got $100 million block of money. I can go buy categorically what exists in the S&P 500. Now, can I actually be the index? Yeah, I guess. No. Wait, what do you mean, can you be the you index? You can't actually invest in an index. Because Why? an index is theoretical. There's no cost to an index because it's an academic representation. So then Here's, how do they get the index fund? The index fund has an operating expense, which tracks the index, but it's le- it perf- underperforms the index by its operating expense. So okay. it will always be index minus expense. So if the index goes up 5%, your actual gain and, might and, be 45 because there's a half a percent. I'm throwing numbers right. out there. Yes, is the answer. Yeah. Yes. You would These are all hypothetical, by the way. We're not talking literal yeah. at this you point. You would have drag or inefficiency in your indexing strategy based I'm paying on somebody the expense you're carrying. To monitor the index, right. to do all the, the homework on it. Right. Okay. Uh, I'm with you. All right. So, so if I buy it from Charles Schwab... Or Vanguard. Right. I and go then to- you can actually go to them and say, well, what's my cost to have the account? What's my cost to make the transaction? And what are the inter- internal costs of the index? So it'd be like going to two different grocery stores to buy the same, to buy bananas. Right? Like if you're going to buy bananas. Okay. I know. I'm, I'm making it really simple. But like if you're going to buy. Or harder. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But like, but if an S&P 500 is a, like if you're buying the index fund, you're buying a product. Right. In essence, right? You're, so you're, you're buying bananas. a product. Like banana, in this case, we're assuming bananas are bananas. You bananas are bananas. bananas. They come from the same They come field, from the same region. They're sourced from the same source. To, the same, to different stores right next to each other. One of them is 19 cents a pound. The other one's 18 cents a pound. 18 cents a pound is more, more efficient. Because you pay less for the same bananas. Yeah. Or is it? So what would the question be then? Well, I just did an entire grocery shopping trip, and okay. everything was cheaper in one store except for the bananas. So I then go next door to buy my bananas and save one penny. Was that more efficient? No, because the amount of time and energy that you spent to go Correct. buy to save the pr- because your one input cent energy actually cost me cost more, more than the to save the money. Right. So as an investor, we need to think like that. Okay. okay. We need to think about. Uh, how what's my access and then there's math involved this goofy thing right uh if i can buy two different identical investments one of them costs me more to purchase it than the other one well get the one that costs less right what if i can purchase one that costs me less to buy it like my transaction charge is lower but the internal operating expense is higher i may not gain the same amount then right so what what do we do we cut off our noses <laughs> by our face. <laughs> we do math. Okay, you literally have to look at it and say, "Well, how much am I buying? What's the parasitic drag, if you will? What's the expense going to add up to? And is the expense of the more costly less than the transaction cost okay. difference?" So I have I have a different metaphor for this. So let's talk about cars and fuel efficiency. Right. Okay. If you said, hey, I want to buy a fuel efficient car and there's a Ford and a Toyota side by side. Right. And the Ford says we get 36 miles to the gallon and the Toyota says we get 37 miles to the gallon. Mm-hmm. But the Toyota is two thousand dollars more expensive. Mm-hmm. 
that's kind of what you're talking about, right? In like, a sense, yes. Like, which one do you buy? Do you pay a little bit more to get a slightly better gas mileage, which you could potentially save the $2,000 over time? Or do you pay less knowing it's not quite as gas efficient as the next model, but you're paying yeah. less for so it? So this example is really, is really one? cool because there's some other elements that apply to investing, right? Okay. But- it's also this perfect time to leave a cliffhanger for our listeners. <laughs> so what we'll do is we'll grab our first break. Okay. And then when we come back, I want to talk about your car example of, you know, different price, different fuel economy. Which one's better? Well, there's more to it than mates the eye initially. So we'll cover that and more when we come back. This is David Littlejohn. And Katie Shook. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240, KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Your favorite show on Tuesday. It's it's, it's my favorite it, show on Tuesday. It may be your favorite show, period. And we are delighted to have you here. Uh, reminder, if you were tuning in on the podcast, share it with a friend. We're getting the word out. Good stuff. Talking uh, about efficiency. Talking about efficiency today. Now, Katie, uh, if you will, paint the backdrop for our listeners. Oh, the one that we started. Okay, so we were talking about car fuel efficiency, right? And like, but, if you're, but, but, but going yeah, back, right? If you were going to go buy a new car, no, no, before that, before so that, the the car comparison is useful because first we talked about index mutual funds, right? We're saying if you could buy the whole two, index. two investments that were essentially identical. How would you tell them apart? The same investment. If you were going to buy the same the investment, same investment at, right? at two different places, then then what's? How do you choose which one if they are apparently identical, but maybe they're not? What are some of the things you should look for? And then we said, you know what this is kind of like is buying a car and looking at cost of the car and fuel efficiency. Right. So we're talking about the efficiency of the fund, but we were also earlier, but we were also talking about. Expense ratios and cost. Yeah. So we were talking about the cost. Like, imagine that you had two index funds. Like, you could buy the S and P five hundred from two different providers. Right. And and I think in our example we used Schwab and we used Vanguard. Vanguard right? right. And and not because we're picking on them and not because we're offering advice right now. We're just using picking names that you've heard two before. Custodians. Right. So let's say that Schwab has an S and P five hundred fund and you can buy it for a trade of four dollars and ninety five cents. Okay. And if you go to Vanguard, the trade is five ninety five. Five ninety five. Okay, so it's a dollar difference. But Vanguard operating expense is point zero nine and Schwab is point one zero. Okay. Okay. So they're not actually identical. They have different internal operating expenses and they have different costs to buy them. Right. Uh, and then theoretically, they also have different account fees that would also influence this. But let's talk about the car analogy. So you got two cars. So I said you have a Ford and a Toyota. And by the way, again, we're just picking things that you're familiar with. We're not picking on the actual items. Um, so you had a Ford and a Toyota side by side. The Ford got slightly less better gas mileage. So 36 miles to the gallon versus 37 in the Toyota. But the Toyota cost $2,000 more to purchase. Okay, so the Toyota gets better fuel economy, but it costs more. Right. Which so one which do, one you, do you buy? Right. Answer, the one with the darker tinted window. <laughs> the right? one with the spoiler. Right? It's oh, the, the, one spoiler. With the spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the other question that was brought up um, over the break that David and I were discussing about this analogy is... Yeah, um, that the question's not that simple. Right. So then what happens when they offer you different financing? Right? So the yeah. terms are different. So yeah, and and some of the others are like, hey, one. I just paid cash for it. Okay, well you're then you hold your breath for one second. Yeah. So if you didn't pay cash, right? 
than your cost of financing. What if that's the same? Same terms, same interest rate, and everything there. Okay, so financing's the same. Right. Then we're going to look at car maintenance. So uh-huh. does is the Toyota cheaper to maintain than the Ford, or is the Ford cheaper to maintain than the Toyota? Sure. Because the maintenance costs of the vehicles are going to go in there. Sure. The other thing that I brought up was um, the well, about, resale value that's a of the vehicle. One, really. So what that's, about if the Ford, who has a mile less to the gallon of fuel efficiency and is slightly cheaper, actually holds its retail value longer? Which would be an interesting consideration, right? And probably not what we typically expect. No, but, but it's an example. But the other one, what if one takes a different type of fuel? One takes premium and one takes regular, right? So the fuel costs are higher. So the fuel costs are different. What we're getting at is you need to analyze the total cost of ownership right. over the lifetime of ownership. Right. Now, if you know what makes this hard? What makes it hard? What if you don't know how long you're going to own it? Ooh, that is a tricky question. Right? That's what throws things off. Most people, when they purchase a car, now if you just say, well, how long are you going to own it? Until it dies. Okay. That's, the, but so first again, of all, there's not a definite length of time. Yeah, yeah, like you you're not guaranteed that like six years and three days to the date that you purchase it, it's going to die. Exactly. And so it's t- so we make some assumptions. All right. Well, let's say we're going to own it for six years and then we'll sell it after six years. What's the likely residual value? What's my total cost of ownership and so forth? I saw this recently done with the Tesla Model 3. Oh, interesting. Right. The reason I found it interesting also is because the Tesla Model 3 touts this uh, gas savings, right? Because yeah, you, get, I saw that. you don't pay for fuel because, because it's you get to plug it in. Yeah. And... Uh, what some folks did was he said, well, let's look at five-year ownership costs, anticipated maintenance, depreciation of the vehicle based on what's been experienced in the marketplace. And they also factored in the average cost of electricity for various areas in the country. Well, that was my question. So even though you have fuel savings, how much does your power bill go up trying Correct. to charge this vehicle every Correct. night? So it really- I mean, it's not a nine-volt little uh, flashlight here right it's and that was the point was it's slightly disingenuous and so the three cars that were compared was a three series bmw the tesla model 3 and a honda civic oh interesting okay it was interesting you know which one came out the cheapest over a lifetime of ownership the honda civic the honda civic (laughs) yeah that was a given (laughs) the honda civic actually was cheaper than a tesla because the Tesla, I would assume, since it's all electrical components, would have a higher maintenance. Well, no, actually, Tesla has a pretty low maintenance issue. But here's, I'll tell you what the big unknown to me is on Tesla, and this wasn't even factored in, is just how long does that battery last before it goes kaput? And when it does, what's the cost of putting a new battery in a Tesla? Well, the thing that a lot of people don't ask, too, is what's the cost of putting in a charging station in your home? Sure. And by the way, that my brother, who's an electrician in Southern California, especially in Orange County, that's pretty much his primary job is going out to people's homes and installing electric stations. And the number one thing that needs to be upgraded is a new electrical panel right. to handle the amount of voltage. Although, you know what's fascinating? Again, I don't know why I get these weird side notes, but the first time ever it seems relevant for a conversation. Uh, my understanding is they passed building code updates in California, now making all new homes mandatory, pre-wired for charging stations and pre-wired for solar. That wouldn't surprise me. I don't me. think it was mandatory that they had to be solar, but they had to be wired to accept solar. Yeah, because a lot of people that upgrade to solar have to install a new panel. Right. And so that is now building code. Whether you use it or not, you're going to do it. 
Which, which just drives up the which cost of falls under the category of not American to me. But again, I'm a libertarian type, so I always look at that and go, I hate it when the government starts forcing behaviors that the free market will take care of on its own. Right. You know, like if if it was more attractive to sell a home that was pre-wired for solar and uh, car charging, wouldn't the you would just pay a premium home, for home, the home builders do that? Yeah. And a lot right. of them, a lot of them, kind of do. I mean, there were homes, there were tracks of homes that were going in around Southern California, and I go down there quite frequently because a family um, that had solar panel roof tiles, like they're they're now upgrading stuff where like the whole track had solar on the roof sure. because it was just an added benefit to buying in that neighborhood. Like you just got it. But we're talking about this yeah, analogy so, of a car yeah, and efficiency and efficiency. And how does this pertain to my investments? Well. It, the, the reason the example was so good, Katie, is because you really got to the immediate uh, crucial issue, which is what's the total cost of ownership? And I don't think a lot of people, when they're buying a vehicle, they just go, oh, I want this brand and I want this thing and I'll just kind of pay whatever they tell me to pay. But they don't sure. actually do. It's not about the efficiency. It's about oh, cars it's about are the very like. much lifestyle purchases for many people. But so, some I mean, like, investments are very lifestyle, too, as well. I mean, it's and we talk about on, this. Well, not on purpose. Probably not maybe. on purpose. I think a lot of folks, it just depends on how you do your research and what motivates you. I mean, I have folks that will come to our office and say, I want to buy pot stocks. And I go, what do you know about him? And the answer is next to nothing, but it's got to be the next hot industry. Right. Right. So we just got to find them. And I always kind of shrug my shoulders and go, it's tough because it's not federally legal at this point. So you, there's not a lot of investment avenues unless right. you're investing out of country. And now you've got currency exchange risk and other elements going on. True. So it's not to say that they're... I'm not suggesting they're wrong in wanting to go. So I'm not making a call either way. I'm just saying... It's not quite as easy as you think. And the rationale is very much, I just know it's going to the moon. And go, well, what research have you done? So I'll give you I'll give you guys a personal one that's an emotional one. My grandmother, when I was little, always bought me Disney stock on my birthday. That was her thing to, to invest in my future. So to this day, I still have a sweet spot for Disney stock. I still purchase Disney stock in my portfolio. It's a one-off of what we do. And I love the fact that David lets us choose our own adventure when it comes to our own personal investments. But um, it's What's now money? It's, it's my money. But but I'm just saying, like, I follow the recipe for like, I'm still invested in the mutual funds that we invest for a lot of our clients. But I will always have a little bit of Disney because for some emotional reason, it makes me feel closer to my grandmother. Katie has a high level of conviction for <laughs> Disney. I, do. I look at Disney and say, you know, there was a season there where ESPN got way out of bounds and got into too much political correctness and not enough sports. And that harmed Disney in their ratings. So, uh, Which, it, by the way, uh, I still look for it to be on sale. And I still go, oh, look, it went down today and then buy. And sure. so far, I've been really fortunate sure. in that one. But but again, but, we, don't, we don't make stock recommendations on this show. So make sure nope. you understand that. that yeah, I'm um, telling you my personal portfolio. Yeah. I'm not, not advising that to you personally. I'm just saying I understand sometimes when people have an emotional right. attachment to a specific stock. So... We're gonna. I, we need to break down. So speaking of stocks, you know, stocks are really an interesting one. We talk about stocks and funds in that last little bit, and uh, you know, I think it's really important investors understand what role those things play in an investment account. Uh, you know, why would you ever own a stock? Why would you ever own a mutual fund? Uh, what can mutual funds own? There's a lot of things there, and then if you're going to go purchase these things, figuring out how to do it efficiently. 
Right. right? Again, this concept of efficiencies, you don't need to pay a lot of parasitic costs, costs. associated with this, right? So uh, t- let's let's talk about mutual funds for a second, right? Okay. But the second after the break we're going to take. Okay. All right. So, so we'll do that when we come back. Do you want to know, hey, is your mutual fund efficient? We're going to talk about that when we come back. Until then, this is Dave Littlejohn. And Katie Shook. And this is True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right. Welcome back to the True Wealth Radio yeah. Show. It is your favorite Tuesday afternoon. It's uh, March 19th. It is. So we uh, d- we did the Irish celebration. We did Pi Day, right? Pi Day's fun. Pi Day was last week. I think Thursday. It so was Thursday. Pi Day was Thursday. If you don't know, if you don't get it, Google it. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, today we're having this conversation about efficiency, e- efficiency and in investing, and in our remaining time, I'm going to get into the weeds a little bit with you. But the goal is, again, I promised that we're going to give you some some genuine analytical utility here. Um, analytical utility. Analytical utility. Okay. I, uh, I feel like I should put my seatbelt on for this one. Kind of. Okay. Uh, what I mean by this is if you are analyzing things yourself, then... This is going to add value, utility value for how you go and look at things. Okay, so we at the end of the before the last break started talking about mutual funds a little bit versus stocks. Right. What's the difference? Why would okay. you hold one over the other? All right. So first of all, understand what a mutual fund is. A mutual fund is an investment company that pools investor resources. So investors contribute monies into the fund. The fund then aggregates those uh, monies and you and at the direction of the fund manager or in the case of an index, the formula will then purchase investments on behalf of all of the investors and you get your ownership is proportionate to your contribution. Okay, so really simple example, right? Sure. So a thousand people mutually fund an account with a thousand dollars. And then the person, the fund manager, is in charge of all of that money that the thousand people gave him, right? And he goes and says, what should I buy? Well, I'm going to buy some stocks. I'm going to buy some bonds. I might buy some other mutual funds. But all of these people mutually funded an account that the mutual fund manager is going to manage. Yep. And then as you buy stuff, there's an expense for that, right? Because there's an ex- it, it costs something. Well, every mutual fund transactions. Has, yeah, there's there's cost to run a company. There's transaction costs. and there's people to pay, and there's you know they're doing research and they've got folks associated, so they have costs. Right. And, and the the investor shares in those costs. Right. right. And so I put a thousand dollars in, and they said, okay, we're going to offer, and again, we're just making up numbers, just to keep the math simple, right? So we're going to offer a ten percent return, but the expense ratio is one percent, right? So. <laughs> I'm going to just jump in for one moment because I don't want anybody to listen. Mutual funds don't offer returns, just so we're clear. Mutual funds attempt to get returns, right? Any okay. investor goes out and says, hey, we're going to try to produce the best return for the risk and the objective that we have. Thank you for correcting me. And then me. the return is going to be what the investor receives is the return after all the expenses. Okay. Right? So you're going to get paid 
what's what's left after the mutual fund company pulls the expenses out of the return. Okay, so, so they make 10% and they charge one, you keep nine. Right. So 2018 rocked. We made 10% in the mutual fund. They kept 1% as an operating cost to pay for all the transaction fees and everything else and all the people. Right. And my portfolio made 9%. Correct. Okay. So... Uh, and there are other elements to mutual funds. I'm not really going to delve into those today because it's not relevant to the efficiency conversation unless we're talking about tax efficiency. And then you can look at uh, how often the underlying holdings turnover, stuff like that. But tax efficiency is a whole nother conversation right? uh, because it involves how much money do you keep after your return or how much do you have to give to the government. And so, hey, you know, I kept less than I thought because the the fund isn't very tax efficient. Um, But why would you buy a mutual fund? Well, it's really simple. If you want to try to go buy a share of Amazon right now, it costs one thousand seven hundred and some odd dollars. And if I only have five hundred dollars to invest, you can't buy Amazon because I can't so buy a fraction of a share. You can't buy a partial share. You need to own an entire share at a time. So it's not going to work for Amazon. So you end and up I'm buying... putting all my eggs in Amazon's basket. Gotcha. So. Uh, so instead, what you could do is say, well, hey, you know, if I buy a mutual fund that buys Amazon. Now I can get access to it by pooling my money with other people. Right. And so I get the benefit of diversification. Now, why diversification? Again, it's a form of efficiency. It's a form of efficiently managing risk. Right. Okay. Because one of the things that happens with investments is you have something known as idiosyncratic risk. Idiosyncratic risk. Idiosyncratic risk. Which means? Um, It is the risk that any one investment that you hold could blow up and, and be gone. So you, I love the way you say, so if the CEO dies right, and the company all of a sudden goes, ah, we no longer have leadership. Yeah. So I always like to use that example. Yeah. The CEO goes down in a plane crash. That affects the company with the CEO. Uh, the entire country gets buried in snow. Well, that's a system-wide deal. That hits everybody, right? Uh, the tsunami years ago that took... Japan's power offline and then rippled around the globe and you know created a whole storm that that was a system-wide effect because the currency markets were interrupted and it rippled through everything right, right? Uh, tariffs with China big system-wide effect right it affects everything uh, the cost of wood going up it does have an effect as an input cost but as they an become industry. more of what we call derivative effects so derivative effects are not direct but they are derived from and so it's more like an echo not the primary sound, but the sound that bounces back is an echo. Still has an effect, but not as powerful. And the more echoes you have, the less powerful they are. So the further out it ripples in the system, the more diluted the effect gets. So the point, though, is that a mutual fund gets you diversification. If you only own Amazon and Amazon has a bad day, you have a bad day. Right. But if you own Amazon and Home Depot and Shell Oil right. and a bunch of others, Apple. yeah, then the One of them has of a bad day. Some of the others may lift it up. As a great example, today the Dow was up. Uh, Boeing is a member of the Dow uh, as far as the stocks. The Dow Jones Industrial Average has been really struggling because Boeing's been hit pretty hard with the latest grounding of the uh, 737-8 MAX. Right? Okay. So that was a, a big deal for Boeing. Uh, and as a Dow component, that drags down the performance of the entire index. Although not all 30 stocks were down, certainly. Many stocks were up. And in fact, they lifted the Dow higher in spite of Boeing, not because of Boeing. So let's talk about that for a second, because you always mention the S&P 500, right? And you said it's the 500 largest stocks. It's largest U.S. stocks. Large, yes, largest U.S. stocks. Cap. But that doesn't mean that everybody has one 500th of a position. Meaning like, 
um, weighting wise, right? <laughs> right? Like some like are bigger than others, right. even though they're all in the 500 category. Correct. It's based on market capitalization. The bigger the company, the bigger the weighting in the index, right? So you get a company like Microsoft and it takes up a big chunk of the index because it's really, really big. So it can have a bad yeah. day, Compared but other a, little companies around it can have yeah, a good day and it will still look down, yeah, even though the other companies like, did good. Mm, AMD, you know, computer chip manufacturer, okay. way smaller than Microsoft. Right. Right. So it is way smaller percentage of the S&P 500 as a weighting. Right. Okay. But again, we're getting um, off my primary point from an efficiency standpoint. So the first thing that you want to look for, if you're going to compare mutual funds uh, and you want to look for efficiency, you want to know, am I getting the benefit of a mutual fund or should I transition to a different asset class? Meaning, like I could buy the S&P 500 as a mutual fund or I could buy uh, some other fund and I want to know, well, is it going to give me better results than the S&P 500? Here's an interesting thing that you should look at. This is a statistic that you should look at to determine whether or not you're getting any significant statistical value for breaking away from just buying the index. Okay. Okay. Now, there is a term out there that investors should know called phantom indexing. Phantom indexing? Phantom indexing. There's a phantom index? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, what? A phantom index is when your mutual fund... Haunts you at night? Oh, no. Yeah, your mutual <laughs> fund actually, behind the scenes, is statistically indistinguishable from an index. The performance of their mutual fund is so closely tied to the index as its benchmark that they are almost statistically identical in behavior. Oh, interesting. Now, but you're not actually buying the whole. You're index. not buying the index. You're buying a fund, but the fund so closely mimics what the index does ah, as to give you no statistically different discernible difference between the two. Huh. But what happens is, and so one of the things you want to look for is a a statistical measurement known as R squared. R squared. Yeah. What does that stand for? Uh, I don't know what R squared stands for. It's just the the, the term for it. It's, okay. it's actually the, the letter R and squared. then the squared. Okay. And this statistical measurement, what it's doing is it's saying how much movement in uh, an investment can be attributed to the movement in its benchmark. And, and what this really comes down to is some studies that say that your asset allocation is one of the largest contributors to your investment performance. It's not the individual stock selection as much as it is the area of the stock market itself. So like when technology is moving, all technology moves, okay. not just one company. Uh, because of the one company moving is idiosyncratic risk, oh. right? But as a whole group, they tend to move together because there's a high degree of correlation right. amongst assets. So it doesn't mean a, that one a, causes the other sector. But for some reason they like to run right. together. And and the statistics are somewhere around 93% of uh, uh, the movement in uh, a stock can be explained by its asset allocation typically. Okay. So if you have an R squared value that's really high like 0.98 or 0.99 cuz R squared doesn't go higher than 1. So okay. it's, so so if you've got like so that's a, really high if it's yeah, so if you got like 0.98 then 98% of your the movement in your mutual fund in this case is Mimicking explainable the by the benchmark. Okay. And then you go so there's only 2% deviation. Then you start comparing the returns and go am I actually 
getting superior returns? And if the answer is no, you may be, and again, not advising here, but you may want to look at a comparable index fund instead because the expenses may be lower and they would be therefore more efficient than your phantom index fund. Interesting. Right? Okay. So, yeah, by this is something that we do for our clients by the way. Cool. Behind the scenes when we analyze everything, we look at well, high how five, much David and Justin. Yeah, <laughs> how much of a of a fund move can be explained by the underlying index. And what we're looking for is we like to see R squared values below uh, 80 or below 0.8, right? Because you want it to be statistically different. We want to, we want a benefit from our diversification, and we're looking for assets that if we're going to pay a manager to do something, we want to make sure that manager is producing some form of value to make sure that we're getting rewarded for the additional costs associated with it. Got it. So okay. it's about making sure that the trade-offs we're making are, in fact, efficient for what we pay for. Yeah. It all comes back to efficiency still, right? Awesome. Okay, so, so R squared, really quick. So yeah, so is that's a, a big one. Is a statistical measure that represents the portion of the variance for a dependent variable. Now this sounds really uh, yeah. You see, now you're into the statistical. That's explained component. by an independent variable or variables. Yeah, and so what translation in the investment world is, you're using the the variable you're looking at compared to its benchmark. Right. And so if the benchmark is an index and you have a very high R squared number relative to your benchmark, then you're not getting much benefit for, for of diversification from your benchmark. You're it, basically yeah. you're basically a clone, so why spend the extra money? And that's exactly what Morningstar says. It says measures the relationship between a portfolio and the benchmark. Yeah. So, so that's, that's what that's a is. fun little tidbit to look at for figuring out if you are unintentionally phantom indexing. Now there, there's a there's a very important consideration here that one needs to understand as an investor about phantom indexing, though. What is okay? it? It's this detail that we're going to cover after our last break. Dun, dun, dun. I know. So stick around. You want to know, hey, do I care if I'm phantom indexing or not? We will cover that when we come right back. This is David Littlejohn. And Katie Shuck. You got True Wealth on News Radio 1240, KQEN. Hey, gang, welcome back to the home stretch of the True Well Show. I can't I, believe how fast it goes by. I know, when you're having so much fun. I do. I really, this is my favorite time of the week. I love sharing with our listeners. Uh, I, I have a hard time leaving my desk because I go, oh, I could use that hour to do more stuff. But every time I'm here, I have a great time while I'm here. Yeah, this this to me is really, well, it's what I live for, though. I mean, honestly, the, the part where... Uh, you know, going to work, doing the investing, all that stuff. That's actually really interesting to me. I nerd out on this stuff. You guys could probably tell. Uh, I really love solving problems with clients. Me too. But I really love teaching this stuff. It's just so fun for me when the light bulb comes on for somebody and they go, aha. So that's why this show is really, I know I'm slightly in the weeds, but hopefully our listeners are catching on because, you know, this concept of efficient investing, super important. And it's, it's, I think it's important because if you, especially if you're a do-it-yourselfer, these are things that aren't necessarily intuitive and you don't find them in classes very often. Right. Uh, and if you are working with a professional, uh, honestly, it's not often taught to professionals. You you kind of have to seek this out intentionally to start understanding it. Uh, 
I was introduced to this by virtue of field of study and, and doing a lot of other training with advisors and so forth over uh, really since probably back to 2005 or six. Well, we have a saying in our office, if we can break it, we will. Like we will nerd and geek out and explore and dig and dig until we find the answers we want. Oh, and we break every software that we get. I mean, like we're, so that's just Which is a good thing, by the way, because we're looking for things that have flaws so that people can fix them. Yeah. Like when I want... say break, it's like beta testing. It's not like, oh, now it doesn't work. It's yeah, like, hey, it's... we found out the flaw in your system. You need to patch. And they're like, what? So. We have a flaw? And we're like, yeah, it's right here. This thing didn't work because we were trying to do this one thing. Yeah. So yeah, and we nerd and geek out. But we were talking yes. about efficiencies of mutual funds against the... Indexes, so, like yeah, the, so the S&P 500. We, we talked about R-squared, making sure that you're actually getting a benefit from your investment compared to your benchmark. So isn't it easier just to buy an index fund? Uh, it's really trendy, certainly. And it's pretty easy to do. And it, I'm going to say that from a cost perspective, it tends to be very efficient. Uh, here's where indexes uh, are at a disadvantage. Because it is a purely buy and hold strategy, when the markets go down, there is no risk mitigation. You simply ride the currents downstream the same way you'd ride, the, I guess not downstream, but if they're going to go over a waterfall, away you go, right? I mean, that's right. just how it works. And there's no stopping it because you own the whole thing. Right. Essentially, you've got the market. And if the market's going down, unless you mechanically intervene, you're going down because right. that's what's going to happen. Right. So, uh, in that regard, I, I still my my personal take on this is that there is still a place for active management. Okay. There are still places where active management can deliver superior results depending on what you're looking for. The the primary spot that I see is delivering results in inefficient spaces in the market. Okay. Ooh, now that sounded really complicated. Well, in, inefficient spaces in the market are spaces where information doesn't necessarily travel as easily. Uh, this can occur more easily in the bond market than the stock market. Okay. Because bonds don't trade in blocks the same way that stocks do, and there are not as many uh, marketplaces for exchange, so they're a little clunkier. So you can have more efficiencies or inefficiencies rather in the exchange of bonds. Also, because credit ratings can be wrong. Right. Oh. So sometimes uh, if you're a better credit underwriter than somebody else, you might be able to discern an advantage in the bond marketplace there. Um, another place is in places where there's non-standardized accounting. Like where? China. Oh. Like emerging market environments where you have currency exchange challenges as well as non-standardized accounting and maybe you have less transparency in the marketplace. So having somebody that's directly hands-on in that area that's an expert can deliver more uh, value than That sounds a like insider program. information though. Well, but it's but it's not. I, I suppose it may be, except that it's not. You know, insider information implies that you're trading on information that's not available publicly. Uh, if the information's not on the internet, it's just not there, right? But if you actually send an analyst to China to walk through a factory and to and interview the management, and they come back, and say, hey, this is what and, I found, right? And they go, hey, we've done direct, hands-on, fundamental research, and we have a competitive advantage because everybody else doesn't do this, and we see an opportunity when it before they then do. Then it's not insider trading; it's that's, a competitive no, that's, advantage. That's just doing good research because you're doing your own homework, right? So that's just doing good research, and. I do believe that there are places where also active management can help in sideways or down markets. And right? why is that? 
because they can make decisions about how to sh- how to change exposure to risk when it there's not reward associated with it. Right? Oh, that's interesting. There's always a risk reward trade off, and so it doesn't guarantee that they'll be right, but at least they have the ability to intervene. And so, uh, typically, active managers will say, "Look, uh, it's you, the value's on the downside, not the upside." You know, we lose less in down markets. Well, there's some real math reasons why that's an attractive concept. Right. So if you had a hundred dollars and you lost fifty, then you need to double your money to get back to where you started. You need a hundred percent return. But if you had a hundred dollars and only lost seventy, well, then or lost, lost only lost thirty, only and you lost had 30, seventy, and you had now seventy, you got 70 left. now you you need like a you know. 35% return to get back to where you started. Right. 40. So you don't have to work so hard. And by the way, like getting. So that's, that math was wrong. It's still, a, it's still big. But yeah, 50% <laughs> return. Pick the numbers that make it easy. It's much bigger. Because uh, trying to earn back $30 is much easier than trying to earn back $50. Right. Especially because when the I percentages, only have. Percentages, when you fall, the, the farther you fall, the harder it is to climb out on a percentage basis. You know, right. if you lose 90% of your money, you need to make like 10,000% to get. Back to back, where you were. You know, you're like, oh, I only have 10% now, and I got to, you know, magnify it by 10. And that's just to back, back to up. even. That's not even out of the yeah. hole. I mean, it's like sitting on the ground level. Yes. So, bottom line is that I, I still believe there's a place. I will tell you that in our practice, we literally use all, all of the strategies. The areas that we cannot beat them, we join them, right? If an index is the most efficient place to be, get that. But if you can take advantage elsewhere to increase efficiency and it can benefit the client on a risk-adjusted basis, do, do that. that. And so we actually look on an asset class by asset class basis at what the opportunity sets are that are available. And you know what? They change. All so the time. So it's not static. So unfortunately, it's not as simple as like, well, oh, just do this every time. Nope. It's an ongoing thing. Right. Uh, and I, I really think at the end of the day, that's why a lot of uh, investors still benefit from working with financial professionals. It's one, emotional detachment to improve your decision outcomes because you make dumb moves when you're emotional. True. We all do. Yep. And then two is that if you can squeeze additional efficiencies out of it, oftentimes, even when paying for somebody to help you manage it between the, the tax savings and the strategy savings and the improved decisions, it's worth it. Right. Well, so, and the knowledge base, right? Yeah. You don't know what you don't know. Exactly. So uh, as we run up on the end of the clock here, I'll leave you with this thought. If you were not working with somebody, we would love to have you give our office a call at 541-375-0898. And if you are working with somebody, hey, fantastic. If you're doing it yourself, uh, fantastic there as well. But we're always available for a second opinion. Uh, we're out of time for now. So thanks for joining us. As always, until next week, where I will be gone, but Katie will be here. This is David Littlejohn. And Katie Shuck. And you had True Wealth on News Radio 1240, KQEN.